get ready. I mean, get ready, 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 ready. Welcome, welcome, welcome back, Mitties. I'm so glad you're here with us at the Intentional Leadership Podcast that's featuring none other than myself, Dr. Ross. And we have a special guest with us today, and I'm excited because um, he's a formal pupil of mine, and I'm going to let him introduce himself. Good evening, everyone. Well, good morning to some of y'all this morning time out here in California. I'm Joshua Smith. I am so very glad to be with you guys this morning. This brother here is uh, is, is just a jewel. So whenever he calls, is one of those brothers. When he calls, you come running to see what he wants. So I'm excited <laughs> to be with you all this morning. I'm grateful for this conversation. What's going on, Doc? Oh, man, life is good. It's good to see you, seeing you yeah. uh, being as successful as I knew you would be. Uh, yeah. I remember in the ninth grade when I had the opportunity to really meet you and some of your fellow classmates, and it was eight of you that stood out to me. And I remember saying that illustrious eight that I always wanted yeah. to mentor and work with or what have you, and to see you all flourish in your uh, respective fields it's becoming fathers and husbands and wives and, and, and mothers. It's just, just fantastic. It's great to see you um, yeah. and the success. Share with us your role, um, where you work and so forth, before we start asking all these questions. Absolutely. So for, for profession, I am a director of diversity, equity, inclusion for leading age California. Essentially, that's a mouthful, but essentially I represent about 600 or so retirement homes across the state of Nevada, California, and Hawaii, all nonprofit housing. From it is a continuum of care from CCRCs to affordable health care. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, this broadcast is focused on, you know, discussing leadership, best practices, and uh, a focus for us uh, specifically around culture, uh, um, cultural diversity within the actual workplace. And I know you're an advocate for that, and uh, you have a wealth of knowledge that I definitely want to, to tap into. So talk to me specifically about um, some of the functions or things that you do within the role that you currently have. Absolutely. So essentially, my day to day operations is essentially trying to. Um, so let me let me give you a backstory. So um, we know as a consequence of George Floyd's untimely death and all the things that happened in 2020, there has been a, a more national introspection around inclusion and diversity. Uh, you'll see you're seeing this move in tech. You're seeing this move at all of your major employees, even government officials are starting to draft uh, this role. And essentially this role is a person who is, excuse me, trained in like knowing about cultural competency, developing pipelines whereby folks can get into our industries. We already know as people of color, most of these corporate organizations have so much homogeny at the top. Homogeny is just a $3 word for groups of the same type of demographic. A lot of white, profoundly male, few females at tops of organizations in all the diversity and middle or at lower management. If there is any diversity at the top, it's only in tokens, 
thus tokenism. Mm-hmm. So what they are been trying to do strategically is to try to undo that. And this this role is strategic around trying to do that. So I'm I'm writing all the strategies regarding that. I'm trying to uh, meet, taking a lot of meetings with CEOs and listening sessions and meeting with government officials and legislators and going out to D.C. and advocating with, you know, pipeline institutions and connecting back to my HBCUs and all of that. too. So that's a part of the story. Uh, as well. But yeah, all of these things are part of my wheelhouse and I'm trying to strategically work them into our corporate structure. Well, you're exactly right. It is really on the forefront of everyone's thought at this particular time. As a part of the Intentional Leadership Summit that I recently had, we did have someone to speak on that. If you would have been local, I would have had you as well there to be a part of that discussion. But ideally, understanding um, that, you know, our reflection of our students should be the reflection of our staff. And we need to um, definitely um be advocates for them on their behalf and making sure that we are um, enhancing the environment or the culture as well as the climate within the school for that diversity, you know, that everyone is included. Talk to us about some strategies that you may have for individuals, not only in the classroom or in, in the school districts, but uh, any work environment, some of the things that they need to do uh, in relates to uh, cultural diversity. Absolutely. One of the, the like one of the things that I think are on the, the the quick fixes or like stuff that they could immediately begin to start. Most, most folks look at this as like an insurmountable uh, task, right? Trying to change corporate structure. But we know that that's not the case. Things mm-hmm. are destined to change. It's about it's a consequence of leadership. So one of the things that I emphasize to our members is to try doing try to emphasize things are going to help them with their cultural competency. So DEI-related trainings, um, safe zone training, uh, anti-racist training, implicit bias training. Um, you, you, you hit the nail on the head, Dr. Williams, when you say um, that a lot of times we have so many bright and brilliant students, but the culture that they're trying to come into as a professional is so stiff they deal with so many microaggressions. They have so many, and it, you, it, you, any person of color, if they're, if they're transparent about it, well, I won't make that generalization. What I'm essentially what I'm trying to argue for is that you, we know that this stuff type happens yes, yes. too often. Mm-hmm. And, um, we, and, and it's stuff that, you know, policies are in place, practices are in place that just make us feel uncomfortable, doesn't allow for us to be as organically brilliant and come to the plate doing what we've been tasked to do. So uh, how do we change that? What can we do to create environments to do that? And for the most part, it seems like these conversations are getting much more traction than they have had in the past. So that's that's the silver lining of it all. But we definitely have a lot of work to do. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that is important for me as a leader is that um, I'm bringing it to the forefront and it is a priority. Um, And that's why I thought it was very important for us to constantly continue the conversations around it as a part of the broadcast or what have you. Um, I know that um, there's a lot of challenges as it relates to communication. And a lot of times it's because people just don't know. They really don't know. For example, and I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm very transparent. I always have been. Uh, there was, you know, um, uh, a, a colleague that said, well, I I, I don't see color. Mm-hmm. And to mm-hmm. me, that's problematic. 
Absolutely. You know, because if you don't see color, you don't see me. You don't see yeah. who I am. Speak to that in your thoughts as it relates to that comment and how you can support and in educating individuals about that. Yeah. So let's give it let's give it his its historiographical context. Martin King, Martin Luther King Jr., um, when he gave his iconic I Have a Dream speech, has a clause in it where he talks about his four children growing up in the world, whereby they're not judged by the content of their skin, but by the content of their character. It's a beautiful phrase. <clears throat> and the brother was essentially arguing for implicit bias. Mm -hmm. He's arguing for is he doesn't want his children, his his four daughters or his four children to grow up in a world where because you see them and you make predetermined ideas about who they are. Right. He's arguing for implicit bias. What we have done, what, what has been the response is folks have chosen to be colorblind where they have this clause that you that you said, mm -hmm. you know, where I don't recognize color. I don't see color. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's where they're trying to say that I'm beyond the racist critique. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I don't see this and recognize it as something that's important. But we know, one, that that's a lie because you do see color. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, absolutely. it informs so much of our society. It informs uh, where folks grew up, it informs the resources they have, it informs the historiographical context. We've seen color. We always have seen color. Our nation has seen our employers see color because uh, we obviously aren't invited to see suites. We're not invited to certain places where our giftedness should take us. Uh, we've always seen it. Um, so it's not so they have this color blindness but it's ignorant. It's um, it's just, as you said, it, it's an ignorant, but it's kind of a stubborn ignorance. You know, you have one type of ignorance that's like just absence of knowledge, right? Like, oh, I just don't know, right? Uh, I don't know what's happening. And there's this other form of ignorance whereby you kind of have, uh, you, you don't, it's like you don't have the knowledge and then you're kind of stubborn about making moves towards getting this type of better understanding. Um, I feel like that comic comes in both of those camps sometimes. Uh, some people are well-meaning, ill-advised, and other folks well-meaning, ill-advised, and stubborn around the change uh, that needs to take place. But the whole point there is, is that, you know, you have to recognize that we all have different backgrounds, different cultural expressions, different things that make us unique. And that uniqueness provides a great benefit to our workspace. It, it, it allows for you to be the brilliant mathematician or the brilliant accountant or the, or the CEO or the leader that you are or the expert that you are. That informs that. And uh, when we stop recognizing people's cultural backgrounds for the, get the, what we want out of them, we, we're robbing us and we're robbing our space of what we really need, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's it's just not the best way to do business, and you don't get the best out of your employees. I think, and I think that's really important to recognize that you know, um, you know, have the acronym of uh, MET, which means motivate, inspire, and transform. Uh, and I often tell people, motivation is a self reflection of yourself. I can only motivate myself or change my mindset, the adult or even a child, individual. You can't change anyone else's mindset. So right. I need to motivate myself so I can inspire others. And if I don't know you and I don't recognize you as far as your race, your your um, 
identity, your culture, um, and expose myself and open myself to that dialogue or what have you, I cannot inspire you as an employee to make that dramatic transformation that needs to occur uh, in any organizational structure or what have you. So um, I'm excited that, you know, this is now being talked about more so than ever. Um, any literature or um, magazines or books that you would uh, uh, recommend for individuals that are listening to this podcast to look into or, or acquire? Yeah, it's, it's, it, that's a great question, Dr. Williams. I think that the, the reading material around this conversation is so very robust. Um, and the only reason I'm starting this at saying that as a preference, some of us will be like, duh, Josh, but the reason why I want to start there is because while these conversations are now being embraced, I don't want us to get it twisted. Mm-hmm. We have ancestors who've been working around these topics oh, absolutely. for so very long mm-hmm. and we, and they're due the respect, they're due the recognition for them laboring in, in a place that was unpopular at times when it was unpopular. Now that we're getting it sexy now, mm-hmm. we don't want to overlook that scholarship. So uh, if you're listening and you're looking in, on places of where you want to start doing some research, um, I would advise first thing you could do white fragility. That's a fantastic piece, a uh, beautiful piece there. You have um, uh, so much. And then, uh, honestly, I, one of the things as a history, and this is where my academic side comes in. So you got to apologize just for a bit. <laughs> I, I, I love when folks know their history. Mm-hmm. Right. And I know that history is not a, a single narrative, but it's local, too. So one of the things I would advise you, in addition to reading White Fragility and Anti-Racism and uh, Stamp from the Beginning by Imbru Kimley and all of these other scholars who have published widely around these type of intersectionalities, um, I would also tell you, take a what you could do more immediately is learn the history of the place where you're working, the That's community good. where it's placed. That's good. That is good. Stick a pin in that one. That's, that's, right. that's just get us, get us some, yeah. get us some time to breathe, yeah. right? Right, right, right here, yeah. right. So yeah. if yeah. you're in Dallas, like let's do the history around Dallas mm-hmm. and the company that you work at, mm-hmm. and the way it shows up in the city and in the place where you work at, right? And then let's look at the ways we we can just make that better there, right? The scholarship around this is so very robust, but sometimes we could be so far off into the soteric and the historical that we don't see what's right there in front of us in in front of us or the people and the histories and the narratives that are there. So that local history, I feel, is the best way to do some of this type of work and local resources are all the best ways. Um, But answer the question in the way that it was asked. You know, stamp from the beginning is great. And then also depends on what's your pleasure, right? If you have a theological mind, we have plenty of resources around that, right? You want to put you to Black power and Black theology and all that other kind of conversations and that type of stuff. If you want to do something more around business and then there's challenges there, you know, there's so many authors out there. But I would just say, you know, just kind of start off small, start off tangible and do some local research around where you're placed. Coming from the rural community of Natchitoches, Louisiana, um, and being exposed to the HBCU, uh, Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and yeah. um, migrating to Texas was a shift. 
It was, mm-hmm. the, you know, a cultural shift, a change uh, in mindset, and I had to adapt to that. And unlike some of the recommendations that you said earlier about researching the city, you know, and being uh, acclimated to the culture and the climate in that particular area, because I did uh, stick out like a sore thumb when I first got here. They knew exactly who I was or who I wasn't and where I was from just because of the way I talked. You know, yeah. um, and it, believe it or not, it's the same in the same state because the demographics in um, New Orleans and the mm-hmm. culture there was totally different. Even yeah. though that's in Louisiana, it's totally different than any other city in that particular state, especially my hometown. You in know, the world, so, Doc. Right. World. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's just and, and, and you really uh, I will say I adapted to that culture because I was familiar with it more so than I did for Texas initially. But it was a transition. And I think those tools that you gave us earlier are very important that we do do the the research or be diligent to learn where we work, you know, um, and also the city, you know. Um, because it's so so different, and in Texas specifically, different areas are different. The Plano versus the Oak Cliff, you know, area, which is changing now, and it's becoming more diversified at this particular uh, point because um, people are coming from all over the world, all over the country, and the the thought process now is more global awareness versus just the United States or Texas or Louisiana and so forth. So what are your thoughts about some of the things that I said? Absolutely. I think that what we're participating in is a world market. I think one of the the fantastic discoveries of of the pandemic, right? Uh, While we've lost so many and communities were ruled by this, I mean, if you can dare say a silver lining, right? Um, is that we've realized just how much this world is so small, right? That mm-hmm. this this tool, the web and this web service has connected the world. And in order for you to, if you're really trying to have an informed conversation, your life, what happens in China informs what happens in your mm-hmm. front door, right? Absolutely. If, if, if packaging is slow, it impacts you. If, if, if stuff is not happening, conversations are not happening around the world, it infects you. It affects you. And you realize that if you're not at the seat on a lot of these discussions, you're a day late dollar short on a lot of these things. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a need for us to be beyond, you know, a very narrow conversation. It really our scholars need to participate in the world market. They're competing against folks from all around the world. So they need to be prepared for that. Um, our, our professionals have come from all around the world. Um, our best practices come from mm-hmm. all around the world. Um, and, you know, we need to be able to participate in that, compete, and also know that those folks have different cultures. We can't just recognize uh, the giftedness and not recognize the cultures that attach to them, right? Mm-hmm. The brother is from India and he's your physician. Um, he has a culture that has produced his scholarship, right? If I'm an African-American male and from the inner city and I'm, and I'm your uh, CEO, certain swagger comes from that you know what i'm saying certain types of report yes. comes from that mm-hmm. um and 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 for you not to recognize that or not understand that i mean or not appreciate that and how it com- how it appreciates in this space you know that's just not that's not the move no more I, and I think that you have to embrace it for what it is and learn from it. You know, yeah. um, I, I like how you use that as far as the inner city sway, because yeah. that is something that was threatening 
to some at one particular well, I won't say one particular. They're still threatening to some, you know, um, but uh, and frowned upon as well, you know. And that mindset, going back to what I said, uh, my my quote that I use all all the time: "The genesis of change begins from within," meaning that mm-hmm. I have to change or shift my mindset to say, "Okay, I'm." He, he talks a little different, or he dresses differently, you know, but he's very smart. He's a smart guy, and I want to get to know him as an individual. A lot of other things that you said, Nuggets, Mitties, he talked about, and we spoke specifically around the global awareness and that we need to start, you know, having students students, and, and leaders start focusing on a global um, pattern. You know, I went to a conference um I'm a part of the uh, Potter's House, uh, and Bishop Jakes had an international leadership conference. And at that conference, um, we were talking about dual citizenship, and I'm ready to go buy a property in Ghana. You know, I'm ready. They say they got it for me, and I can have dual citizenship. I, I, hey, I'm down for it. Excited about the potential of being able to do that. And you're right. Now that we have technology, you're in California, I'm in Texas, and we are able to communicate just as effectively and work together, and we learn through the the pandemic, you know, we really can do things remotely at this particular point. We need to start embracing uh, those things. As a leader within your um, organization, how do you define leadership? Leadership for me is is a, a, a trust system. I think that we have to recognize, leaders need to recognize the dynamics of trust that are happening with with being empowered. First of all, a leader is nothing but more than another human being. But because of the giftedness that we recognize in you, either A, your style, your poise, your your command of material, uh, your your spirit, um, your aggression around some of your passion, whatever that is, a group of folks have entrusted you to lead them into the unknown. they have you that's why they they lead you that's what you're doing every every leader is taking us somewhere we've never been into situations we've never identified before and if the and if a leader doesn't recognize that their job is to take us into the unknown into situations that we've never seen before then all you're doing is maintaining a spot you're just holding a spot you're just trying to weather the storm um, but but every day presents us new opportunities. Every day presents us new challenges. And our leaders, we've trusted to help navigate those based off of their experiences and with their wherewithal or just character alone. And leaders got to recognize that folks have trust them to do the job that they're mm-hmm. doing concerning wherever they're leading them for. Oh, I trust. Key that that I have to believe in you. If I'm going to be led by you, I, I had to put that in. I got yeah. to get that. Yeah. In. Oh, that trust is because if I don't yeah. trust you, you know, yeah. I, 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 me personally, and I think with a majority of people, they don't want to follow you. You know, yeah. they, they'll do what they have to do. But to be able to trust you is know that I, you know, I can be transparent with you about my ideas, my thoughts to get the job done, you know, so. Trust is really critical. Um, what do you think about uh, intentional leadership and how it differs from just being a leader? Yeah, intentional leaders, <clears throat> I think, are, are, are a subcategory of leadership. I think leaders all because everybody who's doing the job is not doing the job well. Right. So everybody who's leading, 
does not recognize that folks are trusting them in this way. Everyone who's leading does not always have the people who's following them in their best interest. We have history that tells us that we have examples galore that tell us that. But an intentional leader is one who has a kind of advantage, I feel, over the category of leaders. They they have a, a kind of discernment, if you will, mm-hmm. about how to move in one direction, which way to go and how to make things really try to be put towards the best for the organization. And preferably intentional leaders have a great way of separating themselves from the pack, even amongst leaders. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great, great, great comments. Um Speak to me about some of, I I remember that you had an opportunity to get some books or what have you. Uh, Share with us some of the books that you you got and talk to us about some of those resources. Yeah, so we were talking about, you know, just kind of literature that's going to help you with, you know, conversations around race and equity and things like Mm -hmm. that. Now, one of the things I try to tell my colleagues all the time is I'm multi-pronged, multifaceted. I got a lot of different types of hats I wear. But in this space, um, we talked about in step from the beginning. Oh, good. Good. Love, love. Thank you. Well, Kimberly, that's a fantastic read. What this brother does is essentially talks about racism and defining its history as an American concept. So, you know, it's part of that, you know, um, uh, critical race theory critique. You know, if we know that right now that's being debated a lot in politics, but I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far. Um, just because a lot of this stuff is is rooted in scholarship. Like if, if there's a scholarly critique, we know how to handle that. Write a book, right. let, us, let us subject it to the academy and we'll write something about it, right? Mm-hmm. So that's how it works. Also, there's this another young artist, new graduate out of UC Berkeley working there at Harvard. He okay. has his pedagogy here. I think it's a fantastic read. I'm reading through some of it now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great work, but essentially what he does and he talks about Carter G. Woodson's and the art of black teaching. Mm-hmm. That, that mm-hmm. one was just for you, Doc. I, I felt that all in my, <laughs> all in my uh, left arm. <laughs> I did. I did. That one was I just for you. One. Yes. Yeah, because, you know, so there's an art to what you do. Mm-hmm. There's a skill about how you do what you do, baby. So, and, you know, some brothers and sisters are trying to write that down and try to chronicalize that, that brilliance that you have. And others like you, like the sister you mentioned earlier, Sister Williams and, and, and Sister uh, Lewis and all of those who, who pour into kids like me and did. Mm-hmm. And then I have this other one about black culture and black consciousness. OK, OK. Yeah, it's a thick read, but it's a really good book kind of unpacking, you know, uh-huh. how what is a cultural competency? We talk about cultural competency, but what really outlines black culture? Right. <clears throat> where where can you find it? where it's where do they store where they their valuables all other stuff so this is just a few books i have i mean just a few just to kind of what that kind of same thing is but obviously i'm a black scholar so that's the lane i'm going in but i have other stuff but that's kind of what i was talking about well i appreciate you sharing those with the mentees and of course the acronym mit uh, and instead of mentees, mentees, it's mentees. So yeah. I often, uh, people often ask me, well, what, are you saying mentees? No, mentees. Uh, yeah. I think they will appreciate those reads to get them started on their journey. This has been a fantastic conversation. I definitely will be reaching out to you again so we can do some follow-up. I am yeah. so proud of you. Thank you, sir. Man of God and Scala. You know, you, I am so honored that I had the opportunity to sow into you and yes, to see you be successful and thrive. 
You have motivated me to do even more so I can inspire others through this podcast and other avenues as well. Continue to do the work that you do. And I have three questions for you. What motivates you? Lord and his people. Ooh, beautiful. Yeah. How do you inspire others? I just try to tell them the truth when I can. Oh, that's wonderful. And last, how yeah. have you contributed to transformation in the realm of culture and diversity? I'm, I'm, I'm defiant. Ooh. I'm defiant. That's good. I'm gonna leave it at that. You know, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna let him have we're gonna let him have it right there. This has yeah. been wonderful. If you need anything from from me, let me know. I will always be only a phone call away or now a Zoom meeting away. Thank you so much. So many of our educators do what they do, and they never have ones come around to say thank you for their investment for their sacrifice. Because they and oftentimes they don't get to see the fruit of it. So hopefully, uh, as you kind of told me now, like you see some fruit there. And I appreciate that, man. Thank you so very much for what you do for for the inner city, for the kids that, you know, would have been locked out, would have been left out. Making that trip down to the hood to doing what you do, baby. We appreciate you. Thank you for what you do. And hopefully that we continue to make you proud. And remember, my brother, the genesis of change begins from within. It starts with you. It's intentional leadership.